This is the first in a series of interviews with Craig Milne on the development of industry policies for the post-COVID-19 Australian economy. Craig Milne is Executive Director of the Australian Productivity Council, an industry assistance agency providing productivity improvement services to business organisations through engineering, human resource and management systems work. Amid the difficulties caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, many Australians are calling for the revival of manufacturing to lessen the nation's dependence on China. For that to happen, Australia's governing class will need to ditch some of the ideas that it has cherished for the last half century. Australia will need to get back to implementing national development policies that might actually work. Welcome to NCC Podcasts, Craig. Thanks, Chris. Can I start uh, with this question? Did Australia abandon policies for national development that work or simply abandon policies for national development altogether? Well, I don't think they worked that well. I suppose we tended to reject industry policy pretty comprehensively, I think, with the tariff reform era, which started with the Whitlam tariff cuts of 1973. Prior to that, we we relied on tariffs and quotas and policies. My, my argument would be we didn't do it very well. Um, we sort of would give we give assistance to industry and we just leave it at that. Um, and uh, admit it was abuse. You know, providing assistance to industry is very dangerous because people, you know, employers and businesses will tend to uh, go to sleep on the job, and trade unions will move in to claim higher wages and conditions than they otherwise achieve. So. If you're going to give assistance to industries, I think, from the state, I think it behoves them to have to regulate it pretty closely. I don't think we did that well enough. And um, I guess, you know, we we look at where we were in the 1950s uh, in terms of our um, percentage of GDP that was in manufacturing and where we've slipped to today, and you might like to talk about those figures a little bit. But what we've done is we've um, gone down now to being ranked 93rd out of 124 nations for economic complexity. Uh, can you explain what economic complexity means? Yeah, look, it's a it's 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 a good useful uh, uh, tool, to, but it's a bit polemical. Economic complexity comes from uh, it's a part of the Harvard University's um, uh, growth sector section. I think they've got there. I think they have a, an index called the Atlas of Economic Complexity, uh, which we do very badly in. Look, it's a good concept. My criticism of their approach is that it looks at traded goods only, uh, and that tends to discriminate against countries which might be fairly autarkic, um, but get a, you know, but get badly treated by this measure. It's, it's, uh, the way I deal with is what I call the Russian problem. Now, Americans really have a Russian problem with anything, but it's interesting to look at where does Harvard put Russia, and it puts them down with Cyprus. Now, I mean, seriously, I, I don't think this, I like the separates, but I don't think they're building nuclear submarines and putting men into space and building six-generation jet fighters. So, I mean, they're, they're, that's the weakness of it. It's, it's, I don't think we're as bad as they say. I don't think we're really down with Uganda and Senegal, although, although our position is pretty grim, just the same. Uh, but that's the reason. It, it tends to focus on trade performance, not in terms of your industrial capabilities, but it defines complexity in terms of your industrial capabilities. It then just goes and measures it in terms of trade performance, but they're not necessarily connected, you see, because if you look at the Russian problem, they trade oil and gas and a few weapons. They don't really sell much in other manufacturers, 
that just the way they are, they provide for their own market. They don't really have much of an export thrust in all the other things they try and do, but they can still do them if they want to. So the, um, you know, in the 1950s, we were about uh, only about 30% of GDP in terms of our manufacturing or what the manufacturing industry was contributing towards GDP. That's um, yeah. down to below 6% today, below that mm. of Greece, I think. Can you yeah. um, explain why... Uh, we've got to the situation where we're in today. Well, it's, it, it was it was the highest it reached, by the way, with 29.7%. That was in 1957. Uh, it's probably below 6%, and I, I think Greece would do better than that. I, you've really got to go to African countries to get them down in the 6%. So, I mean, it's really an appallingly low percentage. We got there because the industry we had in the 50s was sort of capable, but it, it had a lot of structural problems. We tended to have too many firms doing things. Like, I mean, in the 1970s, we had, I think, seven companies trying to make motor cars. Well, you know, the, the Australia never had room for more than two, really, to, be, to have any hope of being efficient or to get some economies of scale. Probably two firms. In fact, in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, one firm would have, would have been sufficient because the scale quantities were higher then than they are now. Um, so we tended to put up with a lot of inefficiencies, and we put a lot of inefficiencies in to try to get competition going in, in industries where, you know, one firm would have sufficed, like aircraft manufacturing. We had Commonwealth Aircraft, which is a wonderful business, but then we set up government aircraft against it and Hawker de Havilland, and, and I think we had three or four people try to make aeroplanes, and there was not even really room for one. Uh, and we, we did these sorts of things. Too many firms, they were quite capable, they were all small um, all subscale, all very expensive, and, and so the industry was okay, but it needed a lot of work done. What we did was we decided to fix it by exposing them to more market competition, you know, like like weathering a Spartan child on the hill. But um, the real effect was just to kill kill the industries off. Uh, they all tried valiantly, but uh, it was it was a doomed quest, really. So I guess the um, you know the problems that uh, have have come about in terms of our lack of manufacturing now are through um, radical free trade ideology. Can you define free trade and uh, protectionism? Well, I suppose you know, free, free trade is an absolute pillar of mainstream economic theory and has been since the French philosophers first uh, conceived of it. It was one of those uh, glorious ideas that you would uh, have a perfect world if everyone traded goods and, and got out of competition on mercantilist minds. You know, Ricardo gave it its, its best expression uh, with his theory of value advantage, which, you know, he used the Portuguese-English example of wool and wine and argued that, incorrectly, but he argued that Portugal was better at wool and wine, but it was even better at wine than wool, so the English should do wool and the Portuguese do the wine and all the English vintners would become shepherds and all of the Portuguese shepherds would produce wine I mean, and they'd have it, they'd enjoy a higher standard of living if they both specialised in what they were good at. And that's the argument for free trade. It was, it's always been strong in Australia and uh, all uh, uh, in, in the economics profession and and, uh, and they were sort of frustrated at federation when the country adopted protectionism. Um, their view would be that you should do what we're best at, which in Australia is minerals and coal and a few agricultural commodities, and we're obviously no good at manufacturing, so we should buy that. Otherwise, our people are paying too much for manufacturers. Um, that's basically their, their argument. But my response to that would be... Um, Australia is a high-incomes country, and as a price is nothing more than the sum of incomes uh, earned in bringing something to market, everything in Australia is expensive. 
when you get rid of tariffs, all you're really doing is killing off manufacturing. All of your inefficient service industries all stay in place. I mean, you know, you can get a motel in, in Vietnam or somewhere for $15 a night, which would cost you 100 here. Uh, you can get a, a meal from a street vendor there for one or two dollars. There's a ten a haircut's a dollar in rural China, it's twenty five dollars here. So all the services are just as overpriced as their manufacturers were. But they, they survive because you can't go to China for a haircut or you can't stay a night in Vietnam if you want to stay in Langaretta. You know, so so it's uh, it just discriminates against all manufacturing and privileges all services that that's all free trade has really done here. Yeah. Just expanding on that, can you explain how protective tariffs foster industrial development? Oh, because they, they make uh, they make hard hard for foreign firms to sell their goods here. They simply put the price up. Uh, that's uh, if you look at the auto industry as a case in point. Yeah, you know, French tariffs in the nineteen twenties were two hundred and twenty percent on imported cars. Two hundred twenty percent. And the, re- the reason was quite simple. They wanted an industry, and if they'd allowed the Americans into their market, then, then they wouldn't have had an industry. So they had to exclude them, and it needed prohibitive tariffs, really, to price imports out of the market. That's, that's, that's how tariffs work. They also raise revenue for governments. Now, you can offset to some degree the cost penalty that puts on your public by cutting taxes elsewhere. So you, you could reduce income tax, for example, and go back to relying on... Um, customs duties for revenues like governments used to. You, know? so you, you also write that um, Australia needs a complex, capable and technically proficient economy able to conceive, design and produce the things needed to secure its strategic interests. And, um, you know, the NCC National President, Patrick Burns, also mentioned the importance of developing industries that serve our strategic interests. What are our strategic interests and which industries in particular do we need to have to protect them? Yeah, look, I, I take the view that uh, any, any developed country has to have good manufacturing. That's, that's the, the, the jewel in the crown of your economic life. It's the most important sector you can have. Because that's where all the clever stuff happens. Um, it's where all the difficult things are done. It's where all the high-valuated things are produced. And it gives you, it, it gives you a, a seat at the table of the, of the developed and rich and complicated nations that are doing these things. You're across these technical skills. Uh, and we used to be quite well, and now we're not. We've just simply abandoned the game. We've got off the bus of technical progress. It's gone on over the hill, and we've enjoyed the scenery. It's going to be very hard to catch up and get back on it again because we've let a lot of distance uh, between it and us uh, evolve. I just think manufacturing is the, the sector you really need to hold on to. Now, what it's, it's really about capabilities, you see. The tragedy in losing, say, the auto industry is not really a currency, it's not just about cars, it's what all of the capabilities that that industry had in metals processing and plastics and robotics and casting and precision machining, all complicated activities are all done at a high level of productivity and quality. That was the key to it. Now, we sort of said the free traders will say, oh, well, maybe we can have defence industries like submarines and things because we can, we can put aside our ideological belief that everything should be bought in the cheapest market if we have a military industry. And that's well and good, but, but those industries won't teach you much in productivity. They tend to be inefficient and feather-bedded and padded and over-engineered. You, know, you, you learn far more uh, in terms of productivity and quality benefit from a car industry than you do from building submarines, I'd say. Mm. And given the um, you know the state and federal governments, or the state governments and the federal government are you know looking 
hopefully seriously, at um, manufacturing and, and expanding domestic industry. What do you think is needed for um, domestic industries to be successful again? Oh, I think three things. You've got to, firstly, you're going to have to regulate trade in some way. The idea that a high-income country with low scale and weak skills can compete in an open market against the world's best of anything is a fantasy. Uh, you're going to have to find a way to privilege Australian firms entering into those sectors, and that means you've got to, to some degree, regulate trade. That's the first thing. The second thing, you've got to have some degree of state uh, intervention. You know, one of the most baleful aspects of socialism is it's politicised the idea of the government taking a stake in industry or guiding industry in any way because it's turned it into some sort of issue of class struggle and equity, and it's, it never was that. It's simply one of the tools that a nation-state should have available to it, that if, if in need, the government can, can set up an industry like we set up the SEC or great businesses like that. It's a, just a thing, or the railways in their time or building roads. It's a thing you should... We have to be able to have the state taking an active role uh, and, uh, and guiding and d directing certain of these industries. And the third thing we have to ensure is that we own the industries we have in Australia, the people are here, working here, and responsible to us. Global firms never work for us. They're not bad people, or well, some of them are, most of them are not, but they, they work on a global agenda which has only a coincidental uh, parallel to any of our interests. They don't really run together at all, as we found with automotive. You see, you've got to own your industries in Australia. They're the three things. Trade regulate, state regulation, and local ownership. That's how you're going to build industry. And I guess one of the other things which really needs to be looked at is the the cost of power. And uh, I think no oh. no manufacturing country in the world can operate with unreliable high cost no. power. No, that's absolutely absolutely right. I mean, I can in my last SEC bill was five point four cents a kilowatt hour. The bill I paid out is about forty cents. So it's an absolute scandal. And that, that's that, that's the twin evils of privatisation and green policies on electricity. And the private firms love green energy because it's expensive. It's a more expensive unit to put a margin on. Uh, they, they have no interest in improving the productivity of electricity supply. And you'll, going back to wind power plants is like going back before the industrial That's what we used to rely on before we had steam engines. We, we relied on renewable energy, you know, mill ponds and stream flows and windmills. That's how we, how we got by. And they're just limits to get what you can produce with such poor... One of the points I made in that first paper which is a very important one of the cases of electricity here, is that energy is the whole substrate of economic prosperity. That's what made Britain great. It was a way of harnessing fossil energy to provide useful mechanical work that began in Britain and powered Britain to dominance. It underpins all modern economies, this low-cost, abundant energy. Australian energy is about 200 kilowatts per person per day. It's per kilowatt hours per day. It's a staggering amount of energy we use. Uh, in any developed country, and green policies are threatening all of that. Oh, they're disastrous. We have to fix energy. It's a, it's a priority. Definitely, definitely is, and uh, you know the government, federal government, certainly making noises, um, but whether they actually put in um, in place things that actually change uh, to really dramatically lower and uh, ensure uh, reliability of supply in the energy market, and uh, and encourage manufacturing to any 
meaningful degrees uh, remains mm. to be seen. But um, mm. uh, I, I mm. certainly encourage our listeners to go and check out Craig's um, articles mm. uh, now the, the occurring mm. in the previous News Weekly and uh, another one coming out in the News Weekly to be mm. released this week. Mm. Um, and you'll mm. see um, Craig's going through several elements of the, um, you know, what's happened to manufacturing and how we can improve the situation in Australia. So. I really encourage listeners to to check those out, subscribe to News Weekly and, and see in detail the, the arguments there. But thank you for uh, your time today, Craig, and uh, look forward to uh, having another podcast with you next week. Thanks, Craig. Look forward to it. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. Bye-bye.